When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Joe Bonomo, who wrote for the 33 and the Third series on ACDC's classic album, Highway to Hell. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So we do a lot of 33 and a Third books, and I always ask the same question because everybody goes somewhere different with their selection. So what was your pitch to them? What was it you wanted to write about in this album? That's one of the things that appeals to me about that series is that you're right. They're, depending on the on the author and the and the album, they, it can go in any direction whatsoever. Some can be autobiographical. Some can be sort of purely music journalism. Some can be sort of a hybrid of that. Well, one of the reasons why I call what I wrote an essay is because I, I kind of wanted to write about an album, but I wasn't sure about how I felt. I, I mean, I think I knew how I felt about it, but I wanted to, to sort of write my way into maybe discovering what it was I think about this record and why it is, in the case of Highway to Hell, that it still matters to me after all these years. So I pitched it to them as sort of a three-part book, a book about um, memory, a book about uh, adolescence, and a book about the sort of enduring nature of rock and roll fandom, because I wanted to explore sort of in those three things things where my stake is in this record and, and try along the way to answer why is it that a sophomoric rock and roll album matters as much to me as it does now all these decades later as when I first heard it when I was 13 years old. Well having read your book that's a hell of a pitch because you, you nailed it. All of those things come through very loud and clear and um, you know it's interesting let's get into it because your attraction to them started in all places at parochial school correct? Yeah that's right. Yeah, uh, I was a Catholic school, educated my, my entire life, uh, first grade all the way through through high school. So there I was in eighth grade, and Highway to Hell comes out. I, I knew about the band because DC 101, one of the great rock and roll uh, radio stations in Washington, D.C., used to play the live version of Whole Lot of Rosies from the If You Want Blood live album that came out, just the album before Highway to Hell. But Highway to Hell sort of is the album that broke them, as we all remember. And to be a, an eighth grade student at St. Andrew the Apostle Catholic grade school, it was quite an experience because I was meant to to be scared off by the record. I was meant to frown at the record for its celebration of, of hedonism and so-called glorifying of Satanism and all that. 
when at the same time, being a, a music fan already, an intense music fan at that age already, and a, and a guy who loves rock and roll, I was also equally attracted to the record and absolutely loved it. That kind of queasy dynamic or queasy tension, which so many people have experienced in different ways, was one of the things that attracted me to the record. When you're 13, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, songs that you love kind of get into you and they really stick, you know what I mean? No doubt. They become part of your DNA and you end up sort of defining the rest of your life in opposition to them in, in humorous ways and maybe in some profound ways also. So records matter to different people at different times in different places. And that record mattered to me at that time, like a lot of others did, in part because it's a great rock and roll record, in part because the indoctrination I was receiving as a Catholic student should have driven me away from the record when, in fact, it, surprise, surprise, made it all that more attractive to me. Of course. I mean, as you said, hedonism and Satanism for a 13-year-old in a Catholic school, that that is just rich stuff right there. Ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> I got into them a little bit younger, and I was down in Miami, which didn't have great radio stations, but I happened to see them on the Power Age tour with Cheap Trick as a double bill. Oh, wow. To this day, you know, I'm older, my kids are grown, and it's tough to put that record on. Reading your book, I went back and listened to Highway to Hell, and it's been a while. But let's talk a little bit about the growth of ACDC and how they came up through. I learned a lot in your book, and I've read a couple of biographies. You know, you broke out some really interesting stuff that I did not know, and, and perhaps our listeners don't know, but Flint, Michigan was a, the scene of one of their first major U.S. gigs, and they played fittingly with the MC5. Yeah, yeah, and frankly, I, I learned that too as I was writing the book, as I was researching the book. I kind of knew, you know, half intuitively and half, I guess, some stuff I picked up over the years that they had always been popular in, in Michigan, the Detroit area in particular, you know, which, as we know, is, has a long storied history of producing great gritty rock and roll and sort of that bedrock vibe that ACDC gave off earlier in their career especially was really really popular to listeners in the Detroit area so yeah a radio station uh, guy uh, by the name of Kavanaugh he paired ACDC who were on their tour I believe it was the Let There Be Rock tour I think in 77 he paired them with uh, MC5 that was getting back together sort of for a short while and I thought what a fascinating you know sort of pairing because at first blush they don't seem to have a whole lot of in common you know, MC5 was this very, very, very political sort of rabble-rousing kind of band that was very sort of righteous in, in their kind of political edge. And ACDC is not a political band. They, ne they never sing about politics or about, uh, about anything other really than sort of celebrating good times and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, et cetera. So I thought that was a great uh, kind of an incongruous pairing at first, but that feeling of mine didn't last so long once I began to, to think about it. It's actually a lot they have in common sonically you know, musically, yes. uh, although they sing about different things. They both sort of bring to the stage those great, loud, anthemic sort of songs with fist in the air choruses. And so it made for a great pairing. And I, man, would I love to have seen that show. Well, there had to be a lot of energy there because, um, mm. you know, once Angus hits the stage, he doesn't stop moving. And I know MC5 through supposedly just amazing live band. And, you know, I said fittingly with the MC5, because at this time, which is right around 1977, they also played CBGBs, which yep. is another fact I did not know. And CBS Records, you know, were kind of dipping their toe and marketing them as a punk band, right? Yeah, CBS was marketing them that way a, a little bit, but I think a lot of it was just sort of the, you know, the crazy stew of the times, because, yeah, they, they played CBGB. They, they opened for the Dictators, the great rock, New York yeah. City rock and roll band, uh, up at the Palladium on 14th Street, and then after the gig, they, they dipped a few blocks down, you know, south to CBGB on the Bowery, and they played sort of an unannounced slot, and I was able to talk to a, a guy who was actually there and took and took some photographs, one of which I reproduced in the book, and it was, it was great at night and as great a gig as you, as you can imagine, but I 
that that too, uh, when I began writing and researching the book, kind of struck me as a as an odd fact because you normally don't associate ACDC with punk, especially with the New York punk scene, right. uh, or in, you know, let, let alone the English punk scene. But then after I again began thinking and writing and researching and sort of taking a step back, you realize well a lot of it was just what was happening at the time, and ACDC happened to be playing basic lo-fi, stripped down, anthemic rock and roll that, again, sonically had a lot to do with bands like The Damned and, mm. and, and even The Pistols and even The Clash, minus the politics. Right. And so it made, a kind of a, it made to me you know, some sense that they were lumped in with certain critics as being a punk band. Again, not so much in the political righteous sense, but in this idea of stripped-down, low-fill rock and roll. John Holmstrom of Punk Magazine, a famous punk magazine in New York, identified them as a punk band and interviewed them for Punk Magazine. So a lot of it was sort of the maelstrom of the time, the immediacy of the time, before labels became really important and before you had to sort of identify yourself or equally powerfully be identified by the media as a punk band. Now, ACDC didn't necessarily call themselves a punk band because they, again, shied away from the politics of the whole thing. But they recognized that it was really just stripped down basic rock and roll that was trying to kind of blow away <laughs> with decibels the, the, a lot of the pomposity, the overplaying and the theatricality of a lot of the 70s rock and roll. The Pink Floyd and the Genesis. Yeah. And I also yeah. wonder if there's in the youth angle there, because at that stage of their career, other than Bond, who was a bit older, they were all pretty young. Sure. Yeah. They were snotty kids. You know? <laughs> they were snotty kids and they were punks, man. They were juvies. You know what I mean? They were guys who drank and would fight if you fought them and, you know, would, would fight back if you attacked them. So they were as punk and as sort of gutter street level as any of the other NYC or, or London punk bands. Uh, they just identified slightly differently. But yeah, it was that's what I mean by the sort of the maelstrom of the time. It was all these young kids just picking up guitars, turning their back on Elton John and yes plugging back into the, the Monkees and Chuck Berry. And, and even as they made fun of those 60s bands, they were vibing on that same kind of three-chord rock and roll of the, of the 50s and 60s. And ACDC was right there with The Damned and a lot of the others. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but one of the things I really enjoyed, Howie Klein for The New Yorker really nailed it with his review. I don't know if you can paraphrase any of that, but uh, I was stunned at how good that was. Yeah, yeah, he briefly, yeah, he, he mentions that, and, and I, I was sort of talking around that a moment ago, that you didn't necessarily think of ACDC in 1977-78 as a punk band, but if punk was about blowing away the pomposity of a lot of the current top 40 and going back to the so-called traditional values of rock and roll, musically, if not if not always lyrically, then ACDC was as punk as any other band. And I, I agree with that. I think that's an absolutely correct and smart assessment of ACDC early in their career. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the critical assessments of ACDC because that's the trip. Radio's opening up a little bit. As you mentioned, this is Dirty Deeds Done Cheap has been done. I think this is the Let There Be Rock tour, which was, you know, a good record. And in 1978, they go into the studio to record Power Age, which was my favorite album. And uh, Keith Richard happens to agree with me. Do you remember what he said about the band in that album? Well, you know what? It's one of those things like the quote, writing about music is like dancing about architecture which is a great quote that, that apparently uh, 30 people have said, or at least 30 people have been credited as saying. So I've never been able to track down Keith Richards' actual quote, but I know I read and others have corroborated it. He had acknowledged to mixing some of the Stones records to Power Age, to that great sound that, uh, that the Young Brothers got with the band in the studio. And he has gone on record as saying that he really loves ACDC, especially the 70s version, and that he loved Malcolm and Angus's guitar playing. 
he might have stopped short saying they were an influence on him, but I know he loves their playing. And in fact, Angus Young and Malcolm played with the Stones in 2003 or 2004 on one of their tours. So yeah, he was a fan. And I think he uh, especially loved Power Rage, which is a great guitar album, isn't it? Great, great, great. You know, album. It's, a, it's a great rock and roll. It's, and great songwriting on that one, too. Oh, no, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's uh, equally as great as Highway to Hell, I think. Yeah, definitely different. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of these little facts in your book that, uh, you know, you talk about you know, the reasons you wrote it. And it's not just a musical critique. There's a lot of kind of the culture and that kind of thing in there. And a lot of books, they sent me to my record collection or to Spotify. Your book on a couple of occasions sent me to YouTube. The first time was for the amazing Sin City that was recorded on Midnight Special, that live version. That is an absolutely insanely great performance, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Yeah, if I had to, if, if someone came to me completely uh, uh, ignorant ACDC and asking about their appeal, I would send them to that clip. It was for the Midnight Special, introduced by Steven Tyler and Ted Nugent. The guys, the ACDC flew in for this one-off gig, and they played Sin City, and it is so, it's one of the amazing thing about it is that it sounds, at least, seems ferociously loud. <laughs> and if you look at the, at, the, at the crowd, they don't quite know what to do with ACDC yet, because they haven't really broken in the States yet. It, you know, it took Higher Bit of Hell, and then actually Back in Black, to really, really break them in the States. So by the time of the Power Age tour, they were a cult band, basically. And so I'm not quite sure that the crowd in this studio knew quite what to do with them. They seem kind of stunned, really, by them, by, by Angus and by Bond in particular. And I think part of it is, I think, is the decibel level must have just blown them away. But it is an incredibly tight, ferocious, and fun performance. It's my single favorite clip of ACDC. Well, now it's mine, too, so I thank you for that, because I put that on Facebook, and I got a good reaction. And, uh, you know, some people may not like them, but there's no denying the power of that video. It's insane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned, unfortunately, Power Age didn't quite get the band to the top, but Atlantic Records, they liked what they heard, and uh, they suggested a legendary producer for the next album. That's right, Eddie Kramer. And unfortunately, that didn't work either, for anyone, really. No, it didn't. And uh, to his credit, Kramer was very uh, sort of honest and open with me about that when I spoke to him. And, you know, Kramer had been, uh, he was the Kiss guy at this point. He had done uh, a few Kiss albums, that had been, including Kiss Alive, that had become hugely popular. He did Ace Frehley's solo album, which is, in my estimation, the best of the four. Uh, and he really was sort of minting money at that point. So they thought it was a, a great pairing. You know, and on paper it should have been, but they worked together on some demos. They didn't gel. The guy didn't really jive with Kramer. He found Bon Scott a very difficult singer to record. Uh, and, and it just didn't work out. Um, and, and, you know, to the, the credit of both the band and the Kramer, they, they recognized early on in the process that this, this isn't happening, so they, so they aborted it. And, you know, it's worth saying that, you know, Vanda and Young produced most of their records, and that was very much a kind of a family unit. This was kind of the first, I believe, stepping out, and it didn't work. You know, enter Mutt Lang, who had become a significant contributor to the band's success. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah, I mean, and you're right about Kramer. I mean, as I remember now, he was essentially foisted onto the band by Atlantic, who thought it would be, again, a good pairing. But you're right, it was the first time they stepped out of this sort of family unit uh, with uh, Malcolm and, and Angus's older brother and, and his partner, and which they've been working with for years. And then uh, Andrew Mutt Lang, uh, who's English, and uh, he had done some stuff in the studio. He'd done some Boomtown Rats records and Graham Parker and XTC, but nothing really 
commercial busting yet at this point. And, and no one really knew when he paired up with the band just how successful that partnership was going to be for the next three records, I think. Mm. Uh, but Mutt Lang brought something along with his engineers to the studio that just gave ACDC, you know, what they needed to get into the top 40. You know, you know part of this is sort of the, what I call the, the, the dead Bond Scott factor, right? I mean, after Bond Scott died and then Brian Johnson stepped in, Back in Black and For Those About to Rock were enormous records, I mean, million sellers. They, they sort of, in retrospect, dwarfed the success of Highway to Hell, which was a popular record by far ACDC's most popular at that point, but it wasn't quite as huge as Back in Black and For Those About to Rock were. But Mutt Lang was responsible for that, for those records, because he brought that kind of glint and that sort of What's the word? I kind of you want to use the word polished, but I wouldn't. I don't know. You might disagree with me, but I wouldn't necessarily call Highway to Hell a polished record. But he trimmed off the excesses. Uh, as I write in the book, you don't hear a lot of studio sounds like fingers on strings and feedback and that kind of thing that you heard on early records, sort of dirty studio sounds. He cleaned it up a lot and sort of brightened things, I guess. And boy, just out of the box, Highway to Hell was a fantastic sounding record. Not just a great rock and roll record, but a a great rock and roll record that sounded great coming out of the radio. Well, and to be clear, that that was really the directive of both the label and the band, right? Let's get this thing on the radio. Of course, right. Listen, the guys have been banging around for years. They were hugely popular, obviously, in Australia, their homeland, and they were very popular in England and Europe, but they just could not break in America, and they were desperate to. So was their label, obviously. They needed to move units. They had a half a dozen records or so behind them that weren't doing it yet. They decided to do what they had to do to get on the radio. Um, and thankfully, Mutt Lang and his engineers knew just what to do to buff things a little bit, to shine things up a little bit, but not to take away the edge. And you'd mentioned the engineers that came with Lang, and I know Bruce Dernley. Yeah. He had a huge influence on the sound, and I love the quote in your book about how he got the brutal yet clean guitar sounds on those sessions. Yeah, one of, the, one of my favorite quotes in the book, he, he said, the thing to do is to put the mics in the right position and back off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, put the mics in the right place and let the band do what they do, you know. Yeah. Another thing that I, that I discovered writing the book was Tony Platt, the other engineer, the other guy in the studio. He used the great song All Right Now by Free as a kind of a model hmm. for what he wanted to get with, with ACDC. And that makes a lot of sense to me. That's a cleanly produced record, but it has a lot of teeth. It's still a great guitar rock and roll song, but it sounds sort of ready for the radio. So that's the kind of mentality they brought into the studio. Keep it simple. No need to adorn things with any kind of studio excesses or knob twiddlings. Just put the mics in the right place and let the guys play. We're speaking with Joe Bonomo, who is the author of ACDC book Highway to Hell in the 33 and a Third series. And that title track would, of course, become a classic, but it would also attract the attention of the religious right. And that's something, you know, you were personally involved with, but also it's, the band would laugh off, correct? Yeah, they would. At the same time, they would say it's ridiculous and the media is making it up, if not exaggerating it. They would also indulge it. They would count on the infamy to help record sales. So they didn't necessarily deny it as much as they would sort of with a half grin say, oh, this is all a little bit ridiculous. To be fair, they did deny it, but they also enjoyed the infamy, if you know what I mean. Well, you said the perfect word, uh, half grin, and I think that Bon Scott was the master of the half grin. Yes, he was. You know, the perfect lyricist and frontman for this band, but he had quite the checkered past when he joined. He was the real deal. 
Oh, he was the real deal, man. A few years older than the guys. He did indeed have a checkered past. He uh, was in and out of uh, the juvie detention centers for a while. He was arrested more than once for sort of petty things and not so petty things. So yeah, he was a he was a kind of a risky, tattooed, uh, a juvenile delinquent with again with a half grin, whose real passion really was to make rock and roll and and to play in a band and to have fun. And that's what he did. There wasn't. Yeah, as far as I can understand from the many, many interviews I've read with him and the biographies of him, there wasn't a mean bone in the in the guy's body. He did drink to excess. He was an alcoholic. Uh, he couldn't control that. Um, but beyond that, he was a, he was a good guy, you know, who just liked to have a good time. And he brought into the band not just that kind of joie de vivre, really, but also a kind of a, like I said, a kind of a riskiness. I mean, he was, as you say, the real deal. He. He had some, some a lot of scrapes with the law, and he brought that kind of chip on his shoulder against the establishment to the band, and that's what, to my ear, informed the best lyrics that he wrote for them, which was something that, that sadly did disappeared when he when he died. It, it disappeared in the band, that is. Well, his lyrics are amazing. Equal parts juvenile, sexist, hilarious. You know, they possess this sly, knowing humor, and they really sharpened and universalized is the what you use in the book for this album, Highway to Hell, didn't they? Yeah, if you listen to the words he wrote for Highway to Hell, they're, they're in, in a sense less specific about the people he encounters and the places that he goes. Uh, he, he doesn't sing about specifically about hotel rooms as he does in early records or specific women as he does in early records. Yeah, he kind of generalizes his experience. I don't know whether that was a conscious thing on his part, whether it's a natural evolution in his lyrics, but I, I bet it was. I mean, my hunch is that was the way his lyrics were evolving. They were still sort of, I don't know if I want to say autobiographical, but they were personal still. But they were generalized in such a way that anyone listening could find themselves plugging into that in some way, you know, in, in terms of, like you say, the humor of it, just his desire to have a good time and to spread a good time to anyone who's listening to the records or, or watching them play. Well, you suggested that Scott's writing was right out of, quote, the penthouse school of realism. That's a great line. <laughs> but you also draw a direct line to the blues tradition of the double entendre. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's one of the ways we, we can conceive of Bon Scott as a great lyricist. Yeah, a lot of the things he wrote were silly and, and juvenile and uh, sex-obsessed, I guess, for one of the better phrase, but so is most rock and roll. Right. At least guitar, blues-based rock and roll. is A lot of the lyrics that Bon was writing, a lot of the songs he was writing about sex and about fun and about relationships, you can trace back to the early blues guys who were writing about their bodies and, and having sex and, and having difficulties with women. It's part of the bedrock tradition of lyrics that Bon Scott wrote out of. I sort of explore that in a way, not so much to give Bon more credence than he needs or even more value or importance than he needs, but just to show that what he's doing is part of a long tradition and he's just very happily sort of stepping into that. As for the humor, you called Shot Down in Flames the funniest song on the album. Why? I think to me that's the funniest song because he strikes out in it. <laughs> you know, every other song he's he's admiring his hard dick or he's talking about the ways that he's scored and the girls are, are dropping to their knees in, in front of him. But here in, in Shot Down in Flames, he's at a bar, he hits on a girl and he strikes out and, and his boyfriend's about to level him, you know. And it's through the whole song. It's not one little moment. It's, it's a song about Bon Scott striking out of the bar. <laughs> the grin with which he's singing is almost visible. He's obviously having as good a time poking fun at himself and, and sort of celebrating this one night of being a loser as he is in celebrating the other sort of so-called victories. So I think it was a real wise choice for the band to lead off the second side with that because it's a, a very funny and I think a very appealing way that they sort of send themselves up, you know, and it's also hilarious. 
it's where the half grin goes to a full on. <laughs> That's right. You know? That's right. So this is the perfect combination of killer riffs and hooks and lyrics, and it's got the perfect sound for the radio. But timing also must have played a role because it always seems to in these cases. Yeah, of course. Timing, but then the timing is all luck. You know what I mean? Hmm. You can't really prepare or choose the time that's going to work for you in, in whatever it is in your life where you're successful. A lot of it comes from practice, obviously, and a lot of it comes from hard work, but a lot of it comes from good luck. If the Eddie Kramer sessions had worked out, then we wouldn't have had Mutt Lang. And if we wouldn't have had Mutt Lang, we wouldn't have had the sound that he gave to the band, which to my ears, the highway to hell is the perfect sonic blend of, of the band's rock and roll and what top 40 sensibility that Mutt Lang brought to the band. And that's just luck. And, and, you know, also, Mutt Lang came into the band just providentially because the band's manager happened to be staying in his apartment, so had sort of access to him. So you look down the line and all the dominoes fall, but a lot of it is just luck and a lot of it is sort of timing. And the world was ready for ACDC by Highway to Hell. Sadly, Bon Scott couldn't live to enjoy it. But yeah, timing has, has a lot to do with it. You can bust your butt for year after year and you suddenly are successful maybe when you least expect it or maybe when it feels the right time but for the wrong reasons you know what i mean or not for the reason that you necessarily expect or prepare for and smarts too because i think malcolm and angus both were very smart on this record they tightened up the songs a little bit the obvious one that didn't hold to that is night prowler which would earn a bit of creepy history through no fault of the band yeah that's a really sad uh, story uh richard ramirez was this serial killer in, in california that that murdered a number of women, and, and he was a self-proclaimed ACDC fan and wore ACDC hats and T-shirts and apparently left an ACDC sort of signature at more than one of his murders, if not one of them. The press dubbed him the, the Night Stalker or the Night Prowler, and there was this very unfortunate equal sign placed in the media, and the minds and imaginations of a lot of listeners between, between Ramirez and that song. Night Prowler seems to me one of those cases where careful what you wish for, because I'm not saying the ACDC wanted any kind of effect like this for the song to have, but it is kind of a sick song if you listen to it. Mm. I mean, it's about a guy who climbs into a girl's bedroom, and the implication is that terrible things happen. The guys claim it's just an innocent song about a guy sneaking into his girlfriend's bedroom and having sex, but if you listen closer to the lyrics, it's pretty grisly. So it's not surprising that someone with a, a sick mind like Ramirez would glom onto that song, would identify with that song. And so to me, that's one of the things that bugs me about the record. It's a great song. It's a great kind of slow burn blues song. And Angus is, Angus is playing it especially terrific on it. But it's also kind of a an unfortunate song. And I'm not quite so sure that the band, as they write in the book, can have it both ways to say that it's, oh, it's just innocent hormonal stuff, when at the same time, what they're really thinking about is it's pretty dark and pretty lurid. You don't ever want or plan for anything like this to happen, but um, it's not surprising that someone like Ramirez would identify with a song like that. But true to form, Bond put a little surprise humor at the end of the song, which I did not know. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember when the album came out and I first heard it. I noticed that at the very, very end of the track. A lot of seconds pass after the final notes of Night Prowler, which is the last song, and then you hear Bob Scott say, Shazbat Nanu Nanu, which at the time we recognized as the expression that Mork from Ork, Robin Williams' character in Mork and Mindy, would say, 
Turns out that Bon Scott was a big fan of Mork and Mindy, mm. which in and of itself is pretty hilarious to think about. And uh, yeah, he, so he dropped that little uh, Orkin greeting slash curse at the end of the record. It's a perfect way to kind of end the album with a joke. Yeah, definitely. And def- pure Bon Scott for sure. Yeah. You know, as somebody who's worked in the industry as an art director, I was thrilled that you spent some time breaking down the album cover and the photography. That's also a pretty iconic cover. And it was very well conceived and in advance, right? Yeah, in fact, well in advance. Another thing I learned writing the book was that the famous cover photo of Harvard Hell was actually taken two years prior. It was originally intended for the Let There Be Rock album, but they didn't use it. It's a great shot that the photographers, of course, airbrushed the horns and the devil's tail on, on Bond and, and Angrets, but it was a very carefully orchestrated and very carefully composed shot that captures the band, I think, just sort of perfectly. And and when I was a kid, basically, and I first picked up the record, it was a little scary, you know? It was a little threatening. They looked like some of the, again, I went to Catholic school, and they looked like some of the, the quote-unquote public school kids who I knew. They didn't have to wear the school uniforms like I did with the, mm. the tie and dress pants and the shoes. And so the guys in ACDC looked like some of the local toughs around me, and that was part of the, the attraction of the album, part of what was a little bit scary about it, too. It's funny, though, because Bond, maybe he can't help himself, but, you know, he's got that laugh going on there, which kind of gives it a little bit of levity to not make it quite so sinister. Oh, absolutely. If everybody looked like Malcolm Young, I'm not sure I'd take the album. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have bought it. It would have been a little bit too threatening. And I love Malcolm Young. He's, he's the heart. Oh, he is. And you talk a little bit, too, about the photo on the back. And the photographer, I think, in your book tells you he wished it had been a little bit more. And I had to go look at it. It had been a while since I'd seen it and the, the smoke behind the band. And he had a very distinct vision, too, which maybe he thinks he came up short. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they needed a shot for the back, and they were in New York, and they wanted to find an abandoned place to photograph the band. It was in the middle of the night, and they found a, this unfinished freeway out in Staten Island. They posed the band, and yeah, the, the photographer told me that he wished he had really played up the sort of smoke behind them, the kind of a lurid, scary look. He does think that he, he fell a little short on, but it's still a great photograph. All the guys look great. They look like a band of buddies, you know? Right, right. It was just that part of it is, is in retrospect, but they were poised just on the cusp of big time. They look confident and casual and just waiting for it to come. Well, the Australian version of the cover of Highway to Hell is a bit beyond the pale. That is insane. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what the American Bible Belt would have done with that one. Right. It's the same photo of Highway to Hell, with the disembodied faces, and they're sort of disappearing into down an infinite guitar neck into this void with fire <laughs> smoke everywhere around and it's really over the top and i think that atlantic records in america made the right decision by by using the one they did no doubt it's one of the really recognizable covers oh yeah you know we spoke earlier about critics you wrote that it took a little while for critics to catch up to the marriage of loud noise and pleasure and i have to wonder if they ever really did catch up acdc seems to me to be one of the perfect examples of what the kids got and the critics did not Yep, you're absolutely right. And I I knew that intuitively when I started writing the book. And after I started researching a lot of the contemporary reviews, boy, that really was the case. They really did not have many friends among Mm. critics. Just about every critic dismissed them as sophomoric and stupid and one note and uh, shallow and uh, repetitive. But who cares? Because they would sell out shows left, right and center, you know. And I think it bugged the guys. I know Bon Scott had bugged him. He wished that the band could have gotten a little bit more respect from the critics than, than they ultimately did. But he also knew that that wasn't what mattered. At the end of the day, what mattered is the fans in front of them at the shows. A lot of it had to do, in retrospect, the, the critical appreciation of the band, such as it was. It came over time, you know, after Bon Scott's death and then when Brian Johnson joined. And the next two albums had hit the stratosphere commercially. And because the band has lasted so long, I think there are some critics, maybe the second, third generations of critics, 
critics who look at them a little bit differently and at the very least admire them for their longevity and for the way that they never really sold out. They never did the power ballad. They never put out a greatest hits record just to milk the wall of, of their fans. And I think there's a grudging respect among us certain critics for the band's sense of purpose, I guess, and for their authenticity. But most critics to this day dismiss ACDC right. as a not very interestingly artistic band, a band that certainly <laughs> did not evolve very much. I mean, Angus Young has even said on occasion that we they make the same three albums over and over mm-hmm. again. Uh, but they're okay with that. They're, you know, the band's proud of that. And who the hell do they have to apologize to since when they do put out a record, it still sells well. And when they tour, they still sell out giant venues all over the place. So if, as a critic, you believe a band's value is based in part on the way they evolve and challenge themselves from album to album, then you're never going to conceive of ACDC as, as a terrific band. That, that's just the way things are. Yeah, the, their fans certainly love them. And, and taking mm-hmm. that point to the nth degree. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. is the second thing that you sent me down a YouTube hole, and that is Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Wow. Just to tell our listeners, that does not feature ACDC, but it was pretty interesting to explore. It's a remarkable document, isn't it? It's insane. <laughs> May of 1986, Jeff Krulik and his friend John Hayne, I believe is his name, is they took a giant, you know, mid-'80s, size camcorder to Capitol Center parking lot before the band played and they interviewed the high and drunk fans hanging out of cars and hanging out of vans and walking the the, the parking lot partying you know pregame as it were before the show and it is a remarkable document of rock and roll and heavy metal fandom there's not much frankly that you can do to describe that video that really does it justice you have to watch it you really do I was stunned yeah, because I can quote some of the some of the hilarious, infamous things that some of these kids say, but I can't do the voices, and you you can't get that the exact tone and perfect pitch of the way these guys were talking. 
you're just out of their minds with expectation for the show and out of their minds on drugs and, and booze. It's jaw-dropping. Oh, it is. It is. You know, one of the interesting things that you explore, and it surprised you, and it's expressed in the, the parking lot movie, was the female fans of hard rock with the macho lyrics and all that. And, you know, I'm curious what you make of that. And then you also went back to some of your parochial school uh, friends and, and spoke with some female classmates about ACDC. I'm curious what you found. Part of my original pitch for the book was that I was going to do that. I was going to, to try and track down the classmates of mine who graduated school with me, and I wanted to ask them if that record still mattered to them now all these decades later as it does to me, whether they still listen to it or to think about it. And the responses were great. A lot of the kids, a lot of the kids, a lot of the, the adults <laughs> said that they don't really listen to it anymore, but the album still brings them great memories, great memories of being a teenager at that time and, and listening the record, but I really did want to ask the girls I went to school with what they thought of the record, in particular a few of the of, of the girls who I, I remember as being kind of tough chicks who were fans of the band. And I asked some colleagues of mine, too, and, and, and women my age who I didn't, didn't know at the time, there's no real through line between all of what they said except that they admitted to loving the record despite the lyrics. Right. You know, because the songs are so rocking and because they put you in a great mood and, it was, and, and, and they amped you up and it was great to be rocking out like that. Only later would they listen to the words and maybe there would be some <laughs> disquieting moments. But another another woman said that, you know, what, what better way to prove yourself alluring and sexy or to attract a bad boy than to like a band that the bad boys like. And another woman I spoke to said that she, you know, she liked the fact that the songs were about getting down and fucking and, and drinking and, and screwing around behind the school because that was appealing to her as a woman, just as, as it's appealing to boys, too, at that age. So there's no real there's no real answer to why women, those who do love that album as much as, as men do, except it's all part of the the vibe and all part of the, you know, the good time that you're experiencing. And you got uh, Kim Shattuck of The Muffs and journalist Carolyn Kuhn, and even Susie Quattro to weigh in on the matter. So that's a, it's a fascinating kind of tangent in your book, and especially from the, the Catholic school perspective, yeah. to read that. And, and I think you're right. You're going to get a different answer from everybody, but everybody, if you're looking through the 15-year-old lens, that's going to color you know, your perspective, I think. Yeah, of course it is, right. And, and you know, we're really just, our brains are literally still, still developing <laughs> at that right. age, and we're trying on personas, and we're scanning, and we're figuring out what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl. And in the middle of that drops this great rock and roll record. Well, if you're me, you're going to respond to the music first and the lyrics second. That's something I've always done, not by choice. It's just intuitive to me. And, of course, a lot of women are going to experience it the same way. And only later, you know, when you're done listening, you think, hmm, what was I, what was I banging my head to? You know, that was, a, that was maybe a little meaner than I thought or maybe a little bit more sexist than I, than I would like. And yet it's a great rock and roll song. So there's that, the present tense of that conflict there is kind of eternal, isn't it? Well, again, I'll point our listeners to uh, Heavy Metal Parking Lot. And there's, you know, plenty of heavy metal younger women in that talking real time. And clearly having, yeah, having as much fun as the guys. No, no, doubt. Doubt. no doubt. So the band delivers, the label delivers, radio delivers, the fans show up and they deliver. And at the absolute peak... Bon Scott dies from the rock yeah. and roll classic Death by Misadventure. Yeah. I'm curious if you read Bond by Jesse Fink, who also did a book on the Youngs, because he makes a, a pretty compelling case that it wasn't alcohol, but rather heroin that did Bond in. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I did read Jesse's book. Um, I, I liked it. I, I admire it. I think as a book, it's more successful as an attempt than it is providing a definitive answer. 
So I don't know necessarily. I mean, clearly Don was dabbling in, in smacks. There's no doubt about it. I don't know necessarily whether that was what caused his death, whether it was a, a sort of a leading cause for it or how much how much it had to do with it. But clearly Bond was partying too hard. There's no doubt about it, whether it was heroin or, or more likely drink. You know, finally, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what did him in. It's the fact that that he died. As you say, in 1980, early 1980, Highway to Hell was only what, six months old, seven months old. He was writing, apparently chasing some ideas for the next record. They were going to tour again, and it would have been it. Bond would have finally, after all those years, achieved the kind of commercial success he wanted. You know, in retrospect, his death is a tragedy, and it's also a terrible shame that he couldn't experience what the rest of the band did. Yeah, we're we're speaking with Joe Bonomo about his 33 and a third book on ACDC's Highway to Hell. And I'm not sure if irony is the right word, but... Another irony is the album that follows with Brian Johnson is kind of Bond's Requiem, and it's, as you mentioned earlier, it's just a smash. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget, and, and well, I was 14, so it was awesome. That's the only word I could, I knew at the time, I guess. It was an, just an awesome sort of tribute, in addition to the black cover, for Bond Scott's death. And I think at the time, I probably, I couldn't articulate it to myself yet, but I think I really kind of dug that that gesture on the band's part. I thought it was, I think it was a pretty cool and respectful thing for them to do, to sheet the album in all black and in this kind of somber, grieving way, and then to open it with those funeral bell tolling. It seemed like a real kind of righteous tip of the hat and respect to Bond. And then what follows is an incredible rock and roll record, you know, equally as great as, as Highway to Hell and Power Age. So yeah, that was that was an incredible kind of run the band was on at that time. And um, it was difficult to listen to Back in Black at the time, and especially later, and not to be saddened by Bon Scott's death, but you also recognize, well, this is what ACDC does. You know, they, they go to work. <laughs> they play. They, they do what they do and they head down and, and back to work. In retrospect, a kind of perfect logical sense that they would they would pick up the ball as soon as they did. What about the notion that uh, many of the lyrics on Back in Black may have been written by Bon Scott? Do you buy into that? Yeah, it's possible. Again, that's one of those things we'll never know for sure unless, unless irrefutable evidence pops up. Uh, I don't know. It's it's possible that uh, that they got hold of Bond's notebook and took a line or two or, or more than that, um, but I don't know. We'll never know. Well, regardless of whether you're in the Bond or the Brian camp, uh, you just mentioned it. ACDC has become more than a rock and roll band. They're one of the biggest brands in the world. Converse gave them a sneaker line, <laughs> but you count yourself, as do I, as a bit of a famous, and you define that as someone who gets kind of turned off when a band becomes famous. Is that what happened here with you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, you mentioned timing earlier. Part of it was timing. I was, well, by the time uh, For Those About to Rock came out in, I guess, 81, and then the next album, Flick of the Switch, in 82 or 83, I was already kind of turning my back to top 40, and I was finding myself less and less interested in top 100 bands than I was in sort of punk bands and mm. indie, indie bands, and then in just a few years, the so-called um, alt-rock bands and kind of smaller and indie labels. So part of it was timing. Part of it, I just wasn't interested anymore. But a lot of it had to do with, yeah, this sort of self-described famism on my part, which is not something I'm terribly proud of. And I think that some days I'm, I maybe wear it as a, as a too cute of a, of a badge of honor because I certainly missed out on some things at the time. But I, I still feel it very strongly to this day when a band becomes so big as if they feel virtually far from me that I, that I can no longer literally see them in a small club or even in a small theater. I, I get turned off a little bit. I'll still listen to the records, but there's something essential that's missing in my relationship to them. And I realize that this is my fault. <laughs> 
and my problem. I certainly don't wish any band not to have success, you know, in order to stay small for me. But I also can't at the same time can't deny that something something leaves, something departs my affection for a band when they become too big, when they feel like they're 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 everyone's no longer just maybe mine and my buddies. And and, and that's certainly what happened with ACDC for sure. Yeah, I do not I don't think that's an uncommon thing. Mm. So sadly, your book was published before Malcolm developed dementia and could not tour with the band. They ended up, I think, signing his nephew to play. And as you mentioned, that's what they do. Malcolm eventually succumbed and passed away in 2017. Do you have any final thoughts on that? Well, it's just a shame, isn't it, Uh, that he was no longer able to do what he loved to do more than anything, as far as I understand it, uh, than to play rock and roll to write rock and roll songs, to record and, and to play them in front of hundreds of thousands of people. That's what, he, that's what he loved to do. It was a job for the guys. They were factory workers. You know, They don't deny it. That's the mindset they were brought up with. If this doesn't work for me, I've got to work in a factory the rest of my life, and that's the last thing I want to do. So they worked as hard as they could to be as successful as they could. And it finally became sort of painfully obvious to everyone that he could no longer really perform and, and do what he, what he wanted to do or what he used to be able to do. Well, your book is fantastic, and I want to thank you for speaking with us today. It's so interesting to go back into the music, but also into your own mind and your own space when you're that young and kind of parse this information perhaps differently. And that's really what your book does and does well. So thanks uh, for joining us, Joe. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Steve, for having me. That was a lot of fun. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.